Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Subscribe to this newsletter at snoozecast.com. This episode is brought to you by The Wild Land. Tonight, we'll read O Pioneers, a 1913 novel by American author Willa Cather, written while she was living in New York. It was her second published novel. The title is a reference to a poem by Walt Whitman entitled Pioneers, O Pioneers from Leaves of Grass. If you enjoy this episode, you can find an episode with another poem from Whitman's Leaves of Grass titled Song of Myself and published March 13, 2019. You can also find another episode from Willa Cather titled My Antonia, published September 19, 2019. get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. spring, evening and the flat land, rich and somber and always silent, the miles of fresh plowed soil, heavy and black, full of strength and harshness, the growing wheat, the growing weeds, 
the toiling horses, the tired men, the long, empty roads, sullen fires of sunset fading, the eternal, unresponsive sky. Against all this, youth, flaming like the wild roses, singing like the larks over the plowed fields, flashing like a star out of the twilight, youth with its insupportable sweetness, its fierce necessity, its sharp desire, singing and singing out of the lips of silence, out of the earthy dusk. The Wild Land One January day, thirty years ago, the little town of Hanover, anchored on a windy Nebraska tableland, was trying not to be blown away. A mist of fine snowflakes was curling and eddying about the cluster of low, drab buildings huddled on the gray prairie under a gray sky. The dwelling houses were set about haphazard on the tough prairie sod. Some of them looked as if they might have been moved in overnight, and others as if they were straying off by themselves, headed straight for the open plain. None of them had any appearance of permanence, and the howling wind blew under them as well as over them. The main street was a deeply rutted road, now frozen hard, which ran from the squat red railway station and the grain elevator at the north end of the town to the lumber yard and the horse pond at the south end. On either side of this road straggled two uneven rows of wooden buildings, the general merchandise stores, the two banks, the drug store, the feed store, the saloon, the post office. The board sidewalks were gray with trampled snow, but at two o'clock in the afternoon, the shopkeepers, having come back from dinner, were keeping well behind their frosty windows. The children were all in school, and there was nobody abroad in the streets but a few rough-looking countrymen in coarse overcoats with their long caps pulled down to their noses. Some of them had brought their wives to town, and now and then a red or a plaid shawl flashed out of one store into the shelter of another. At the hitch bars along the street, a few heavy workhorses harnessed to farm wagons shivered under their blankets. About the station, everything was quiet, for, for there would not be another train in until night.
On the sidewalk, in front of one of the stores, sat a little Swedish boy, crying bitterly. He was about five years old. His black cloth coat was much too big for him and made him look like a little old man. His shrunken brown flannel dress had been washed many times and left a long stretch of stocking between the hem of his skirt and the tops of his clumsy copper-toed shoes. His cap was pulled down over his ears. His nose and his chubby cheeks were chapped and red with cold. He cried quietly, and the few people who hurried by did not notice him. He was afraid to stop anyone, afraid to go into the store and ask for help, so he sat, wringing his long sleeves and looking up a telegraph pole beside him, whimpering, My kitten, oh my kitten, her will freeze. At the top of the pole crouched a shivering gray kitten, mewing faintly and clinging desperately to the wood with her claws. The boy had been left at the store while his sister went to the doctor's office, and in her absence a dog had chased his kitten up the pole. The little creature had never been so high before, and she was too frightened to move. Her master was sunk in despair. He was a little country boy, and this village was to him a very strange and perplexing place, where people wore fine clothes and had hard hearts. He always felt shy and awkward here, and wanted to hide behind things for fear someone might laugh at him. Just now, he was too unhappy to care who laughed. At last, he seemed to see a ray of hope. His sister was coming, and he got up and ran toward her in his heavy shoes. His sister was a tall, strong girl, and she walked rapidly and resolutely, as if she knew exactly where she was going and what she was going to do next. She wore a man's long ulster, not as if it were an affliction, but as if it were very comfortable and belonged to her, carried it like a young soldier, and a round plush cap tied down with a thick veil. She had a serious, thoughtful face, and her clear, deep blue eyes were fixed intently on the distance, without seeming to see anything, as if she were in trouble. She did not notice the little boy until he pulled her by the coat. Then she stopped short and stooped down to wipe his wet face. Why, Emile, I told you to stay in the store and not to come out. What is the matter with you? My kitten, sister, my kitten. A man put her out, and a dog chased her up there. His forefinger, projecting from the sleeve of his coat, pointed up to the wretched little creature on the pole. 
Oh, Emil, didn't I tell you she'd get us into trouble of some kind if you brought her? What made you tease me so? But there, I ought to have known better myself. She went to the foot of the pole and held out her arms, crying, Kitty, kitty, kitty. But the kitten only mewed and faintly waved its tail. Alexandra turned away decidedly. No, she won't come down. Somebody will have to go up after her. I saw the Lindstrom's wagon in town. I'll go and see if I can find Carl. Maybe he can do something. Only you must stop crying, or I won't go a step. Where's your comforter? Did you leave it in the store? Never mind. Hold still till I put this on you. She unwound the brown veil from her head and tied it about his throat. A shabby little traveling man, who was just then coming out of the store on his way to the saloon, stopped and gazed stupidly at the shining mass of hair she bared when she took off her veil. Two thick braids, pinned about her head in the German way, with a fringe of reddish-yellow curls blowing out from under her cap. He took his cigar out of his mouth and held the wet end between the fingers of his woolen glove. My God, girl, what a head of hair! he exclaimed, quite innocently and foolishly. She stabbed him with a glance of Amazonian fierceness and drew in her lower lip. Most unnecessary severity. It gave the little clothing drummer such a start that he actually let his cigar fall to the sidewalk and went off weakly in the teeth of the wind to the saloon. His hand was still unsteady when he took his glass from the bartender. His feeble, flirtatious instincts had been crushed before, but never so mercilessly. He felt cheap and ill-used, as if someone had taken advantage of him. When a drummer had been knocking about in little drab towns and crawling across the wintry country in dirty smoking cars, was he to be blamed if, when he chanced upon a fine human creature, he suddenly wished himself more of a man? While the little drummer was drinking to recover his nerve, Alexandra hurried to the drugstore as the most likely place to find Carl Lindstrom. There he was, turning over a portfolio of chromo studies, which the druggist sold to the Hanover women who did china painting. Alexandra explained her predicament, and the boy followed her to the corner, where Emil still sat by the pole. I'll have to go up after her, Alexandra. I think at the depot they have some spikes I can strap on my feet. Wait a minute. Carl thrust his hands into his pockets, lowered his head, and darted up the street 
against the north wind. He was a tall boy of fifteen, slight and narrow-chested. When he came back with the spikes, Alexandra asked him what he had done with his overcoat. I left it in the drugstore. I couldn't climb at it anyhow. Catch me if I fall, Emil, he called back as he began his ascent. Alexandra watched him anxiously. The cold was bitter enough on the ground. The kitten would not budge an inch. Carl had to go to the very top of the pole and then had some difficulty in tearing her from her hold. When he reached the ground, he handed the cat to her tearful little master. Now go into the store with her, Emil, and get warm. He opened the door for the child. Wait a minute, Alexandra. Why can't I drive for you as far as our place? It's getting colder every minute. The girl's lip trembled. She looked fixedly up the street, as if she were gathering her strength to face something, as if she were trying with all her might to grasp a situation which must be dealt with somehow. The wind flapped the skirts of her heavy coat about her. Carl did not say anything, but she felt his sympathy. He was a thin, frail boy with brooding dark eyes, very quiet in all his movements. There was a delicate pallor in his thin face, and his mouth was too sensitive for a boy's. The two friends stood for a few moments on the windy street corner, not speaking a word, as two travelers who have lost their way, sometimes stand and admit their perplexity in silence. When Carl turned away, he said, I'll see to your team. Alexandra went into the store to have her purchases packed in the egg boxes and to get warm before she set out on her long, cold drive. When she looked for Emil, she found him sitting on a step of the staircase that led up to the clothing and carpet department. He was playing with a little bohemian girl, Marie Toveski, who was tying her handkerchief over the kitten's head for a bonnet. Marie was a stranger in the country, having come from Omaha with her mother to visit her uncle, Joe Toveski. She was a dark child with brown curly hair like a brunette doll's, a little red mouth and round yellow-brown eyes. Everyone noticed her eyes. The brown iris had golden glints that made them look like goldstone or, 
in softer lights, like that Colorado mineral called Tiger Eye. The country children thereabouts wore their dresses to their shoe tops, but this city child was dressed in what was then called the Kate Greenaway Manor, and her red cashmere frock, gathered full from the yoke, came almost to the floor. This, with her poke bonnet, gave her the look of a quaint little woman. She had a white fur tippet about her neck and made no fussy objections when Emile fingered it admiringly. Alexandra had not the heart to take him away from so pretty a playfellow, and she let them tease the kitten together until Joe Toveski came in noisily and picked up his little niece, setting her on his shoulder for everyone to see. His children were all boys, and he adored this little creature. His cronies formed a circle about him, admiring and teasing the little girl, who took their jokes with great good nature. They were all delighted with her, for they seldom saw so pretty and carefully nurtured a child. They told her that she must choose one of them for a sweetheart. She looked archly into the big, brown, mustached faces. Then she ran her tiny forefinger delicately over Joe's bristly chin and said, Here's my sweetheart. The bohemians roared with laughter, and Marie's uncle hugged her. Each of Joe's friends gave her a bag of candy, and she kissed them all around, though she did not like country candy very well. Perhaps that was why she bethought herself of a meal. Let me down, Uncle Joe, she said. I want to give some of my candy to that nice little boy I found. She walked graciously over to Emil, who formed a new circle and teased the little boy until he hid his face in his sister's skirts. The farm people were making preparations to start for home. The women were checking over their groceries and pinning their big red shawls about their heads. The men were buying tobacco and candy with what money they had left, were showing each other new boots and gloves and blue flannel shirts. Three big bohemians were drinking raw alcohol, tinctured with oil of cinnamon. This was said, to fortify one effectually against the cold, and they smacked their lips after each pull at the flask. Their volubility drowned every other noise in the place, and the overheated store sounded of their spirited language as it reeked of pipe smoke, damp woolens, and kerosene. Carl came in, 
wearing his overcoat and carrying a wooden box with a brass handle. Come, he said. I fed and watered your team, and the wagon is ready. He carried Emil out and tucked him down in the straw in the wagon box. The heat had made the little boy sleepy, but he still clung to his kitten. You were awful good to climb so high and get my kitten, Carl. When I get big, I'll climb and get little boys' kittens for them, he murmured drowsily. Before the horses were over the first hill, Emil and his cat were both fast asleep. Although it was only four o'clock, the winter day was fading. The road led southwest toward the streak of pale, watery light that glimmered in the leaden sky. The light fell upon the two young faces that were turned mutely toward it. Upon the eyes of the girl, who seemed to be looking with such perplexity into the future. Upon the somber eyes of the boy, who seemed already to be looking into the past. The little town behind them had vanished as if it had never been, had fallen behind the swell of the prairie, and the stern, frozen country received them into its bosom. The homesteads were few and far apart. Here and there, a windmill against the sky, a sawed house crouching in a hollow. But the great fact was the land itself, which seemed to overwhelm the little beginnings of human society that struggled in its somber wastes. It was from facing this vast hardness that the boy's mouth had become bitter because he felt that the land wanted to be let alone to preserve its own fierce strength, its peculiar, savage kind of beauty, its uninterrupted mournfulness. The wagon jolted along over the frozen road. The two friends had less to say to each other than usual. I wonder if your father would like me to bring over my magic lantern some evening. Alexandra turned her face toward him. Oh, Carl, have you got it? Yes, It's back there in the straw. Didn't you notice the box I was carrying? I tried it all morning in the drugstore cellar, and it worked ever so well. Makes fine big pictures. What are they about? Oh, hunting pictures in Germany 
and Robinson Crusoe and funny pictures. I'm going to paint some slides for it on glass out of the Hans Andersen book. Alexandra seemed actually cheered. There is often a good deal of the child left in people who have had to grow up too soon. Do bring it over, Carl. I can hardly wait to see it, and I'm sure it will please Father. Are the pictures colored? Then I know he'll like them. He likes the calendars I get him in town. I wish I could get more. You must leave me here, mustn't you? It's been nice to have company. Carl stopped the horses and looked dubiously up at the black sky. It's pretty dark. Of course the horses will take you home, but I think I'd better light your lantern in case you should need it. He gave her the reins and climbed back into the wagon box where he crouched down and made a tent of his overcoat. After a dozen trials, he succeeded in lighting the lantern, which he placed in front of Alexandra, half covering it with a blanket so that the light would not shine in her eyes. Now, Wait until I find my box. Yes, here it is. Good night, Alexandra. Carl sprang to the ground and ran off across the fields toward the Lindstrom homestead. Ho, ho, he called back as he disappeared over a ridge and dropped into a sand gully. The wind answered him like an echo. Hoo-hoo! Alexandra drove off alone. The rattle of her wagon was lost in the howling of the wind. But her lantern held firmly between her feet, made a moving point of light along the highway, going deeper and deeper into the dark country.